This is Suzanne York with Humans Optimized. We specialize in change management for technology adoption by bringing together advancements in technology with elevated human skills. Our aim is to cultivate human-to-human and human-to-technology collaboration. This combination will allow us to take advantage of the immense opportunities in the future of work. Many of us use technology to track our health, movements, workouts, and sleep. In some cases, it's fun and can provide motivation to change our daily habits. In other cases, it creates profound impact that goes well beyond measuring our physical activity to actually empowering the disempowered. Danielle Richards from Grippable joins me in this conversation to share how her personal experience sparked a passion in her about the concept of embodiment and how it can be amplified by technology. Danielle, welcome, and thanks for connecting with me all the way from London. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, our listeners might have expected a British accent, so before we get too much further, let's share a little about your background. Um, where do you say that you grow up, and where do you spend most? Of, where did you spend most of your childhood? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a bit of a complicated question. Obviously, right. my um, <laughs> accent gives me away. I am American. Um, I have an American passport, and my parents are American, but um, I was born and raised in Saudi Arabia. Uh, my family lived there for 23 years because of my dad's job at an oil company. And I was born there and lived there till I was 18 when my family moved back to America. Um, and since then, I've I spent a few years in America at university and then actually moved back to the Middle East after that. So I've spent at this point three quarters of my life in the Middle East. Um, and then school and my current job brought me to England, where I am now. Well, and there's a lot more to the story in between, which we will unpack and unfold together. (laughs) Well, and talk about very different experiences at a very formidable age, having grown up in Saudi Arabia, but then coming here for college. Mm -hmm. What's something that you could share with us about such divergent experiences? Yeah. So, I mean, I was so fortunate to grow up in such an international setting, um, but I think basically growing up in Saudi Arabia formed me for my passions at a very young age, um, I sort of grew up seeing a divergent power dynamic between men and women. Um, and I think I just internalized that uh, from my earliest memories. Um, and so I sort of carried that with me into adulthood. And um, I think as I sort of started entering the workforce um, and you know, entering the world as an adult, um, I realized that I still just had a lot of um, feelings around women and uh, disempowerment and um, just what seemed like disadvantages that women face every day, whether it's in the workplace or, you know, in any setting, it just seemed like it wasn't quite fair. And I wasn't sure how to sort of uh, square that circle or <laughs> however they say it, you know, how to make peace with that um, as I right. entered the, the workplace. Well, and you had an opportunity to to break some of those barriers and boundaries for women in particular. What was that experience like for you? Yeah. So, I mean, basically I, like I said, I went back to America to go to university and then pretty rapidly after that found myself back in the Middle East. Um, I actually moved back to Jordan to work in women's empowerment um, and was working at a startup company over there that sort of worked in job creation for women. Um, but as I was, you know, entering the workplace, <clears throat> I think just found that 
I, I felt this disconnect between the person that I wanted to be, the person that I wanted to project myself as, you know, as a, you know, equal to my male colleagues, as a strong woman, somebody who could do whatever I set my mind to, but still sort of felt this sense of um, just uneasiness with that, with that image that I just felt this, you know, I still was carrying around this narrative that I created at such a young age um, about being a woman in the world. Um, and felt that I had to constantly, you know, prove myself that I had to constantly um, fight against that. And it just didn't feel very peaceful, didn't feel very um, authentic or real. Um, and, you know, in this process, I, one way that I sort of dealt with that, I was, you know, living in Jordan. So also, you know, was a minority, um, just as a foreigner, but I also was, you know, a woman in that situation, it was a challenge every day. And one way that I started dealing with that was through sports. So I just started, you know, whether it was lifting weights at the gym, or I started playing a lot of football or soccer, <laughs> um, <laughs> and just was, you know, running a lot, training for a marathon and a half marathon, and just basically found a lot of peace in that. Um, and around that time, uh, basically, uh, saw a very old friend of mine, somebody I actually have known since pretty much the day I was born from growing up in Saudi. She's also an American female. And she basically sat me down and said, I have a proposition for you. <laughs> and mm -hmm. long story short, she and another friend were sitting around complaining one day about um, inequality inside the world of soccer. Uh, they both are avid soccer players and we're just talking about, you know, whether it's inequality of pay for professionals um, or just even at the grassroots, you know, from the very low end of club level for children all the way up through professional level, there's just less opportunity. There's less financial support for females in soccer. Um, and as they were, you know, complaining about that and they were like, you know, we need to do something about this. And they came up with this harebrained plan. Okay, we're going to break a world record. Uh, and the world record they chose to break was the highest soccer game ever played. Um, and my friend said, you know, are you in? And without really thinking, I said, yes. <laughs> and so I kind of jumped in early on and sort of helped them start trying to plan this. The plan was that we were going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Uh, there's a volcanic crater just below the, the summit of the mountain where you it's large enough to build a full soccer field. Um, and so we sort of, you know, I took on trying to recruit players from the Middle East uh, because we were trying to get as many players from around the world. Um, and, you know, we did this all in about six months. <laughs> so it was, it was rapid. Um, and, you know, for a few months there, it just kind of felt like as you threw out the net trying to find people, you know, people were like, oh my God, that's awesome. I don't think I'm in. Um, and yeah. then, like, I mean, talk about a bold you know, goal. Like, you had to get people willing to say yes without thinking like you did. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I still give that friend a hard time for it. <laughs> I trusted her a little much. No, but it turned out well. Um, so basically, yeah, it was not sure if we were going to have enough players. And then it just felt like overnight, the snowball effect. And um, I think a professional in the US heard about it um, and tweeted about it. And suddenly it, it just snowballed and we got professionals from so many places. We had the, wow. um, you know, professionals, well, they couldn't call themselves professionals, but basically professionals from Saudi Arabia. Uh, we had a Olympian from the first Let's see, we had a, sorry, a professional from France. We had the first women's captain from the very first Women's World Cup from Germany. 
Um, wow. So just really phenomenal women uh, coming in and saying, yeah, you know, I'm in. And it was just like rapid. Suddenly we had enough players and next thing you know, we're at the foot of Kilimanjaro <laughs> starting our adventure. Uh, we had wow. basically in order to break the world record, we had to follow all FIFA regulation. So we had to, you know, be wearing FIFA uniforms. We had to um, get a FIFA FIFA nets up to the top. We had to have FIFA uh, uh, referees. So it was it was quite the <laughs> quite the piece of planning. Um, and basically, yeah, we we did it. We got all of the players up there. We actually we had two players that got altitude sickness and couldn't make it up, but everybody else uh, made it up. We woke up at, you know, we climbed for eight days. And on the eighth day, we woke up at three o'clock in the morning uh, to start moving. And it was freezing cold and very thin air. Um, And yeah, we ended up playing, I think the summit of um, Kilimanjaro is 5,000, almost 6,000 feet. Um, And I think our game was at about 5,700 or sorry, meters. And our game was at about 5,700 meters. Um, And we played a full 90 minute FIFA regulation game, a full size pitch running. And it was probably the most epic experience of my life. Oh, I can imagine. Um, But yeah, I think the whole, I guess, coming back to the original source of the story was just that at some point in that day, it was like, I just felt something break in that that previous narrative that I'd been carrying around with me. Um, I can just remember, um, you know, you wake up at three o'clock in the morning, you start walking and it's so cold. Your water, like we were, our water was freezing and at that altitude, you need to drink a lot of water. So you're kind of struggling trying to get your water to unfreeze by shaking it around. You're barely breathing. You're just like climbing straight up. And then like, eventually (laughs) the sun starts rising and it's just like, okay, like, we're going to do this. Like the sun's coming up, there's hope, you know, we're going to make it to the top and then we're going to play this game. And I just remember walking and somebody looking at me and saying, could you stop smiling? Like you're making us all look bad. And I was grinning and I didn't even realize it. And I was just like, you know, this is, you know, this is it. This is, this is me now, (laughs) you know, like I'm doing this. Um, And it just was such a, a formative moment in my life. It just truly felt like, you know, I could leave a lot of, the story I'd been carrying around behind me. Um, I was sitting here surrounded by 30 of the strongest women I'd ever met. And it was just amazing. Um, So yeah, we um, played the game. I actually wasn't even sure until maybe the day before the day of that I was going to play because we had a lot of players. And so, you know, it was a question of who was going to be able to play. And then unfortunately a few players got altitude sickness. And so I ended up, you know, playing and then ended up playing the full 90 minutes. You know, I went on first expecting that I would just be taken off, but I just never really got sick. I kept waiting to get altitude sickness. Um, and some players had to come off because they were really struggling with the oxygen. And I just was, I think I was so excited. I was the only non-professional in, in the defensive line I was playing in. And I was just so set on not letting them down. Um, they were just, you know, just telling me what to do. And I was just like, keep up with them. Um, right. And it was just so much fun that it was... The, you know, and then just the whistle blew and it'd been 90 minutes and I was done and I played the whole game and, um, you know, we celebrated and we jumped around and then very rapidly we're like, okay, now we have to put on our warm clothes again and start climbing because we still hadn't summited. 
Um, And it was about that moment that I (laughs) realized that I could no longer see in my periphery and I only could really see pinholes in front of me. Um, And yeah, it was, it was epic, but it was, you know, I I looked at the guide and said, you know, I'll just sit here until the doctor comes down. I definitely shouldn't summit because I'm obviously have altitude sickness. And he actually looked at me and was like, Danny, you have eaten the cow. All you have rest left is the tail <laughs> and grabs my hand and basically pulls me up to the summit for an hour of hiking. And I'm just, you know, focusing on my breathing and we did it. We summited, we came down. And I think that's really where, you know, that was transformative for me. Um, but I think the bigger story sort of starts there because, you know, we, we got down that night and two days later, we were back in civilization with internet and, suddenly the story that had been nothing but a bunch of women, you know, it was a story for us, but it wasn't really a story in the news yet. Um, I think CNN had published one story on it, but other than that, it really wasn't getting any coverage. And then when we got down the mountain, it just sort of, people could talk about it and people were talking about it and it was on FIFA and it was on, you know, it was just everywhere. And we actually were like, okay, what do we do now? And we got a call from, uh, a prince in Jordan named Prince wow. Ali, um, who's okay. an amazing advocate for women's empowerment in the Middle East, an amazing advocate specifically for soccer. Um, and he basically was like, you need to do that here. Like we have women here that need that. Um, and so he basically supported us and helped us get um, sponsorship and um, through his organization, uh, AFDP, the Asian Football Development Program, um, gave us a ton of support. And so we organized a year later um, our next world record where we uh, went to Jordan. Uh, we didn't want people to think that we were being lazy. So, you know, <laughs> playing at a lower altitude, we also hiked 100 kilometers um, and held about four clinics for girls, for a couple hundred girls that, you know, in a lot of situations had never played sports before wow. um, and taught them how to play soccer. Um, in these all-day clinics, and then also played exhibition games sort of around the country in these communities where, you know, women didn't really play sports ever. Um, and then eventually played our, the last day of the challenge, we played our world record game right down by the Dead Sea, so below sea level, so the lowest altitude match ever played. Wow. Um, and it was in a community called Gora Safi, which is a very traditional, you know, um, small community. And once again, like had never really seen women, definitely had never seen women out in their shorts um, playing, you know, in FIFA kit in a professional stadium (laughs) that was built just for us. Um, And that's where it sort of, I think, started to click. This is bigger. This is bigger than a group of women saying, you know, we want equal treatment in sports. And it became this experience of seeing the impact we were having on other women. Um, And in those you know, in running those, those, um, those camps for the girls, it was like seeing their faces light up as they were allowed to play sports. And I, you know, I remember at one point teaching a girl to pass the ball and just seeing her, her eyes light up and just being like, wow, "Wow, like she's, she's feeling what I felt on Kilimanjaro, you know, like she's she's getting that it's changing her story too. It's changing her narrative. Um, well, and the the immeasurable impact that has likely come from the ripple effect of those moments. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was, we had about, I think, 
the number, the count was 2000 people that watched this game that we played in Jordan. And like, I actually, I remember um, finishing the game and uh, a woman that I'd known that worked in development in Jordan was there watching and she walked onto the field and came up to me and said, I want you to look up. And I looked up and it was like, you know, this field was surrounded by men. It was all men because women don't go out to watch sports in the Middle East. And yeah. you look up and all the women are just lining the buildings, um, the apartment buildings around the field. And that's all you can see is women on the rooftops because that's, you know, where it's acceptable for them to watch. Um, right. And it was just like, like, you know, goosebumps. I get goosebumps talking about it now. It was just, you know, like it, it changes the narrative and it definitely has ripple effects. Um well, and you have that narrative to compare it to. So the one that you you grew up with and the self-awareness that you had in recognizing that this was, <clears throat> excuse me, this was holding you back. Mm-hmm. And what's remarkable for me about the story is the idea that a new experience was needed for you to unlock that old story. Exactly. And, I think, yeah. yeah, I think it's that connection of, um, mind and body. It's like a holistic, it's a holistic experience. It's, um, it's the way I sort of explain it to myself. It's like, it had to be something that completely exhausted me or completely stretched me to realize, you know, it was all internal. It wasn't like the moral of the story isn't that I got stronger physically, (laughs) but it took the physical experience to connect it to this like larger internal lesson that I had. Oh, I love that connection that, that yes, your body might have gotten stronger, but the real lesson in this was what it did for your entire outlook. Mm-hmm. And, and so how, how did that then change your story to get you to where you are today working for a health tech company? Yes. Um, so basically around this time, actually, um, yeah, I think it, no, shortly thereafter, actually, shortly after the Jordan world record, um, I got accepted to go to business school here in England at Cambridge and um, sort of went in not sure what I was going to do, kind of assuming, mm-hmm. you know, my career up until this point had been helping companies go to the Middle East. Um, and that's sort of how I could market myself. I'm great at market expansion. But as I, right. you know, <laughs> when you go to do um, an MBA they sort of say that this is your your transition point. You know, like people do MBAs to change geographies or change industries or, you know. And so I kind of had this opportunity to sit back and say, you know, if I could do anything, what would it be? If I really could make, you know, a triple jump in my career. Yeah. Um, and I kind of came to this realization that um, I think a really um, sustainable and impactful way that people could have sort of experiences like I had was through sort of health tracking, fitness tracking technology. Um, I knew that I'd always wanted to work in technology. I'm just really excited about the way, you know, it's always changing, always innovating. But um, when I was really honest with myself, I was like, that that would be ideal because I know that it looks from the outside. I think we think about, you know, wearables and fitness tracking as um, a gimmick or, you know, great, like get people taking more steps. But when I look at it, I'm, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, like there are people out there that this is actually having a similar sort of empowering dynamic in their lives. It's, um, helping them connect 
a physical experience with an internal shift. Um, and that's what I, I got really excited about. So basically sort of finished my degree, started job searching and somehow managed to <laughs> convince a startup that even though I had no experience in medicine, um, I could, you know, work on their commercial team. And that's what I ended up doing. So, um, yeah, I work for a, a neuro rehab startup. Well, that's how it started. But basically, we create um, a product that helps patients that need to do hand therapy get sort of better data um, and do more engaging rehab around their recovery. So um, they can play games to do their rehab. Um, but the cool thing about it is that in playing the games, they get basically information about how they're improving. They can see, you know, I couldn't do this a month ago and now I can, uh, whether it's, you know, their grip strength is getting stronger or they can rotate their wrist better. And it's, you know, patients from anything from, um, you know, MS, stroke, um, post, you know, traumatic brain injury. So really a wide swath of patients. But yeah, what excited me was sort of the tech and the the impact that can have on lives. Right. And the the data alone can really allow for different decisions to be made in their care um, and also give them the motivation to keep going, like you said. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, so yeah, we our product sends data to therapists, whether you know the therapist is there with them or is remote, which has suddenly become even more um, pertinent and applicable now during this pandemic. Um, yes. But like what what's gotten me in sort of those moments that I'm like, oh, I love my job has been um, just the the stories of patients that are like, you know, we had one one patient that was like, I never thought I would do this again. Like I'm, you know, I'm 70, I had a stroke and I never thought I was going to use this hand again. Um, and really the difference, you know, it's like, especially in England, everybody has access to, to rehabilitation because we have the national health services. So, um, they have access to that treatment, but the difference is that when they're sitting at home with a ball of putty or, you know, a piece of foam that they were given by their therapist and they're told to squeeze it, you know, a hundred times a day that's painful, it's boring, and they don't really see any results. They can't tell that they're getting, you know, they're able to now squeeze a tenth of a kilogram stronger than they could yesterday. That's, right. you know, and so it's really hard to to keep going. It's really demotivating. And I think ultimately, I could imagine that there's, you know, a sense of this is me now, you know, this is, I've had a stroke, or I've, you know, whatever it is, that's a disability, like this is who I am. And when they're able to sort of get the data and see how they're improving, it really like, you know, I draw a line to sort of the experience I had where it's, it can change their whole identity. Like that patient that said, you know, I never thought I'd be using my hand again. It's like, okay, now he's somebody that has use of his hand again. You know, it's, it's. it's And the world has opened up or the world has reopened up for him. And you are, you're, you're, opening up the possibilities beyond what was thought possible. Exactly. And I think that's, yeah. it's really um, fascinating and all, all my favorite words, remarkable, amazing, uh, inspirational, this, this, the way in which that technology is really amplifying human potential. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, this is like a, a drastic example with my company, sorry, my company Grippable um, is a drastic example because it is working with patients that, you know, 
might not even have use of their hands, but I think all of these technologies are, I mean, that's why they excite me. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, I look at some of my, I have friends that are like, you know, I never thought I could run a 5k, but then I got mm-hmm. a Fitbit and now I can, you know, like it, it got me moving. And then, you know, I ran, you know, one mile a minute faster than I did six weeks ago. So yes. that keeps me moving, you know, and it, it, we can chalk it up to just being a gimmick um, and gamification or what, what have you, you know, whatever buzzwords you want to throw out. Mm-hmm. But what yeah. really excites me is, you know, friends of mine, women I know that, you know, might not have done this a few years ago. And, you know, you can see the excitement around, it's not just getting more fit. It's, I'm yes. a stronger person than I thought I was. I can do more than I thought I could. Yeah. It might be starting externally, but it's really transforming the internal. And when you shift your internal, everything about your world changes. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Oh, well, your story is truly inspirational. Everything from your your early childhood all the way up through your record-breaking <laughs> moments with soccer and all the work that you're pursuing with, with Grippable right now. I just, I'm excited to see where you go and what you do with all of the experiences that you've had. Is there anything else you were hoping to share or wanted to mention? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I know, we covered company, a lot of ground. <laughs> company is grippable. Uh, the organization that I broke the world record with is Equal Playing Field. Um, and they're continuing. They broke another world record last week. <laughs> so even wow. in the lockdown, they're continuing to do amazing things. Um, so definitely worth checking out. But Absolutely. I've got a few um, soccer-loving, playing family members, too, that I can't wait to show this to. And, and my six-year-old is an aspiring uh, soccer player, so I can't wait for her to to see the possibilities through a new lens. Oh, amazing. That's so exciting. <laughs> oh, well, Danielle, thank you for your time. Thank you for all you're doing for the intersection of healthcare and technology and for the excitement that you bring. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, this is wonderful. Thanks for listening to this episode. For more information and to contact us, visit www.humansoptimized.com.